0: All right, good morning. Let me just say, it, it, make it clear, and I think Mike did in his prayer, that Bob is not done. I mean, his physical labor may be done here, but his leadership and wisdom and input and service is, is still a long way to go. So, you guys ready to get into the Word this morning? Um, we are, we've been walking through a series in the new year here that... We kind of took a break from Hebrews and we jumped into this series on, on the outcomes of our life and, and discipleship. And so this morning we're on the part of that series that, that talks about each of us sharing our grace story. And what we've said in this series is that if you value God, truth, love, and mission, if your life is consumed with those things, if your life demonstrates that you value those things above all else, worshiping God, love, truth, and being on mission with God, all of those that work so closely together that we see from the Word of God, then your life will have particular outcomes. And we've decided, as we see it in Scripture, that the measurement of success isn't going to be, you know, how many people are sitting here, or, or money, or how happy everyone is. The measure is going to be, what do those outcomes look like in our lives as a group, and, and are they increasing? Does that make sense to everyone? And, and so we've talked about growing in our intimacy with God. We've talked about the fruit of the Spirit. We've talked about um, um, these elements of discipleship that are outcomes of a life that values God, truth, love, and mission. And this morning we're going to talk about sharing your grace story. And so if you would, let's pray and get started. God, we just thank you for your story. Most of all, that you've revealed it to us. You're not a God that's afar off. You're not a God that just created everything and didn't inform us or speak to us. But you are a God who loves us and who has spoken to us in your word. And we get to see your story, not just active in the world, but active very personally in our lives. We're grateful this morning. Help us to see that this morning in an increasing measure and help your word and your activity in our life produce in us the ability to boldly and clearly declare your grace and your glory to those around us. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Amen. I love story. I'm one of those guys that I remember... um, The first time a movie completely just, like, encapsulated, engrossed me. Like, I was just, I remember the first time as a child being lost in a movie. Anybody ever felt like that before? It was at the Tri-County Mall. I think it cost my dad a buck. Um, The first time he was going to take me to the movies, he was supposed to take me to Bambi. Do you remember this? And it wasn't showing, and I cried and cried and cried because I thought I was going to the movies and I, I didn't get to go. And then we went to Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Come on. <laughs> I was lost in that movie. As a child, I sat at Tri-County Mall and was like, wow. Like the little Asian kid short round. Like I just wanted to, to run around and, and be Indiana Jones or be his friend. And I remember being completely lost in that movie. We love stories, don't we? From the time that people have been carving them on cave walls to um, oral traditions and, and men throughout history of great oratory and capability to tell phenomenal stories to today, whether it's Hollywood or YouTube or for the kids just watching these short, annoying things on Vine or whatever it is that they're looking at on apps, some of them are really funny actually. Um, we, although we've become more and more ADD in our ability to, to engage in story and it's got to happen a lot quicker and crazier, um, story has incredible impact in our lives. The spoken word, the depiction of, of these themes and these, uh, these overarching themes of life that we connect to, that we relate to, that inspire us, that change us. It's probably why, um, to some degree, our culture, um, in a really unhealthy, strange way, worships storytellers so much, right? But we love story. I think, to some degree, to to a great degree, God has created us in this way. And folks, a lot of folks that are successful in life or capable in life or, or that are achieving certain things in life, many of them, whether it be in relationships and in social settings or in workplace, have a capability to articulate clearly and maybe um, very effectively stories. They're good storytellers. And so what we see here in, in Scripture is that that there is a story. It is the most connecting story. It is a story of truth, all-encompassing truth that in in a grace-given way God has impacted our lives with and then he causes us or declares us to then be messengers or ambassadors of a story. Now sometimes when we say the word story, we think of fiction, right? And that's not what I'm talking about here. Part of my job um, as a prosecutor, my vocation is is to put witnesses, apologize, to put witnesses on a witness stand. As a prosecutor, um, we bear the burden of proof in a case. So as the government has pointed its finger at someone and said, "You've, you've committed this crime, we're accusing you of a crime, under our system of law, Anyone accused of a crime has a right to look back at the government and say, prove it. And so the government bears that burden. And so as a prosecutor, I'm often standing in front of 12 people and saying, I bear the burden. The burden never shifts from me to this defense table where the accused is sitting. It's always on me. The defendant doesn't have to say anything because the burden of proof is on us to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that every element of this crime that we've accused this person of, we have to be able to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And I often say to a jury as a prosecutor, and I welcome that burden because you're going to hear, and then I will lay out in an opening statement, here's what you're going to hear, and here's who you're going to hear it from. And this is why we know this is what happened. And so as I sit with witnesses, I don't like to say the word story because I'm dealing often with um, uh, child abuse victims or victims of domestic violence. And so I'll say, because I don't want them to think I don't believe them, and as I see what has happened to particular people in their lives, I'll say, you need to tell the jury your truth. You need to articulate your truth. And I often have said over the last 10 years to sometimes, you know, prepubescent kids, five, six, seven years old, you know, as they are certainly scared sometimes to get up on that witness stand. They'll look at me and say, well, is the is the other is, is the defendant, is the bad guy's lawyer going to ask me questions, try to make me look like a liar? And I'll often say to them, nobody knows what happened to you better than you. You're the expert of your truth. And so you just make sure whatever question anybody asks you, you make sure they understand the truth of what happened to you. And it's amazing for me as a prosecutor to see people under oath testify and tell people this thing that happened to them, this amazing truth, and to watch the revelation as the proof becomes very apparent of what happened to somebody. It's another version of of story. They're witnesses. In the same way that Jesus declared to us in the Great Commission you will be my what witnesses in the great commission that commands us to go and be my witnesses in your going be my witnesses the title of this message is sharing your grace story it really falls in line with our mission statement of every man woman and child having a repeated opportunity to hear to see the gospel of Jesus Christ, without having to go or come anywhere. Accessibility to this incredible story of a God who's come to save and who loves us. I want you to read something about you this morning, you and me. Let's read something about us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if you could turn there. Paul describes to us what we've been called to be and what we've been called to do. And it has a lot to do with story. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm going to read verses 11 to 21. Let's read it together. And if you don't have your Bibles or an app, it's going to be up on the, it's going to be up on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God. And I hope it's, it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us. We're not, we're not just talking about ourselves so that we're bragging or that you would boast about us. But so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For, for if we are beside ourselves it is for God and if we are in our right mind it is for you listen to this verse for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all and therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died Through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the word of the Lord, Amen. amen? What a powerful message. Here's Paul writing to the Corinthian believers, and he's saying, listen, based on the fear of God, and as we see in verse 14 the love of God, he is motivated to persuade others. See, what Paul is saying is that something has happened to him. And, and as God has come into his life, and we've talked a lot about this in this series, and impacted his life personally with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and his, recog- and his recognition of the fear of the Lord and the, and the judgment of God for sin, and the reality of the sovereignty and the awesomeness of God, And at the same time, the fact that God loved him so much that Paul, who declares himself the chief of sinners, right? He says he even articulates his story as Paul talks about his story as being being one who's the chief of sinners, one who he believes that he's been saved just to show that God can save anybody. He's so impacted by the love of God and the fear of God that he's motivated to persuade others. Isn't that a powerful, powerful sentiment that Paul's writing to the Corinthians and to us today? You know, I don't think we can go anywhere without talking about our stories. And I think the goal is for each of us this morning as we look at the Word of God to get introspective, to think about God's story in your life. We've heard and seen the greatest story ever told, right? That Jesus has come and, and, and the gospel, that he's come and he's lived the perfect life and died for us and forgiven us. And I think to some degree in your life, that second greatest story ever told is, is the fact that he's done that for you and that there is a personal aspect to the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life. And really, I think that's the first step. I could never call a witness in a criminal trial to testify about what they saw, felt, heard, or experienced if they hadn't seen, felt, heard, or experienced anything, could I? I could never call someone to say, this guy did these things to me, or I saw him do these things to somebody else, and to testify under oath about what they experienced or what they saw if they hadn't experienced or seen it. And so the last verse in this passage, Paul re-proclaims re, um, uh, Please, if you haven't been, be reconciled to God. God has come to reconcile you to himself. He has died because we are separated from God, and he comes to bring us back into right relationship with God. And the only way that happens is through the death and resurrection of Jesus, right? So is that a personal story for you? I think part of us sharing our grace stories is thinking about the gospel in and, and, and reference to our own lives. Really, it's not about a religious activity, just going to church and checking a box and, and saying, I came to church and the music was pretty decent and the guy talked for a while and he told a couple jokes and, and, and then I've done that for this week. It, it, it's so much more. It's a truth about what's happened to you and what's transformed your life, which is what motivates us to what? To worship because of what God's done in our hearts and our lives, right? The church is about worshiping God. And Paul emphasizes that. The fear of the Lord, persuade, it, it, it motivates me to persuade others in the first part of this passage. And I think you have to ask yourself that question. As we talk about grace story, you really have to get to a place, each of us, where we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own lives and what our story is. I think some folks um, as you talk to them over the years, I was a youth pastor for a long time and I'd sit with students and kids who have grown up in the church and they'd, they'd look at me and be like, I don't really have a story. Anybody ever felt like that before? I don't really have a story. Um, I've kind of always been here. To me, is a remarkable story. It's a remarkable story in the context of the gospel and what God has done and how God has used a family to preserve the life of a young person as, as they've grown and, and known of the gospel. And what I also recognize when speaking with young people is, is the book of Ecclesiastes where it becomes very clear that if you live long enough, you're going to bleed. It's going to hurt. And God's grace and love and preservation through, through life's toughest times, it all becomes part of our grace story, does it not? So we got to think through the gospel of Jesus Christ in our own lives. We've got to think through our stories. There's nothing quite as compelling as listening to someone share a story about something that's happened to them. Is it true? I sat with a lawyer in my office a couple years ago, and he's a, he's a hunter. And he's one of those hunters that like, gets on airplanes, little Cessna, and flies out to the middle of nowhere, like the Yukon or something, and he goes and shoots really big things. And his plane crashed. And he was stuck out in the middle of nowhere. And I'm sitting in my office, like, listening to him talk about what had happened to him. Listen to him talk about how cold he was, how scared he was, how him and his friend were looking at each other, saying goodbye. In thinking through, are we even going to make it? Is anyone ever going to find us? And as he articulated the senses that he felt, the, 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 the smell of it, the, the fear of it, the, 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 the reality of it, the mindset, the emotion, I'm sitting in my office listening to this guy trying not to cry. Like, has anybody ever been there before? There is no greater story in my life as I sit and think about it and ponder it and look at the word of God, there is no greater story, no greater truth about me. Wherever I've come from, whatever I've done, whatever I've seen, wherever I've been, there is no greater story about me than the story of how Jesus Christ has come into my life and how God has set me apart and and adopted me and impacted me, giving me the gift of faith and grace and forgiven me and completely transformed and changed my life. There is no greater story about me than that. We live in a world today. I've been reading this book about worldview called Total Truth. And we live in a world today that that throughout from, I think, Aristotle through the Enlightenment and through different kinds of things that have happened in our culture and in our world throughout the years, a worldview has been developed, particularly in our society, where there is multiple layers of truth, where people now don't believe, where historically this has never been true, people now don't believe that that there is a truth about God and man and and whatever you believe about that that invades and, and has impact in every area of life. People have now layered the truth to say, well, there is a public truth, a scientific truth, kind of a worldview truth that we all talk about, and then this thing about God and Jesus and whatever your faith may be, that's another layer of private truth. That somehow there is a public truth and a private truth, and whatever happens to be true for you privately about God and, 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 and what you think about faith, that's just something you have. And the, the other truth is something that we can all talk about. Does anybody, anybody see that in our worldview today? It doesn't really make a lot of sense Because if something's true, it's true. And I think Christian worldview, a Christian worldview recognizes that the reality of God and who he is and how he's encountered us and speaks to us and changes us is is an impacting truth across our entire lives. The way we live, the way we interact, the way we talk, the way we see things, it should have a whole life impact in who we are and it is truth, Amen. Your story is important, your story is powerful, and the word of God tells us that God has saved you and died for you and given you this story, and in reconciling you, he's given you what? The message of reconciliation. For you to be an ambassador and to open your mouth and to speak the truth of what God has done for you to declare his glory. Amen? Because what God is going to do in this world, he's primarily going to do through his people who he's changed, who he's saved, and who he has given a story to for us to open our mouths and declare the story of who God is. We get to know who God is because people tell us. Does that make sense? That's what Paul's saying in this passage. So what we see in these verses, he says, listen, I'm not not telling you to talk about all the things I've been through just to boast about me. You know, he's been in prison, he's been beaten, he's been uh, shipwrecked like three times. Like, I survive a plane crash, I'm not getting back on a plane. Paul's been shipwrecked three times, and the dude keeps getting back on a ship. And then he gets shipwrecked and bitten by a snake, right? Like, so Paul's story is unbelievable. And he says, as you speak about these things, I'm not doing it to boast about about me or to boast about what we've been through. I want you, as he's saying in 2 Corinthians in verses 12 and 13, he's saying, what I want you to do is I want you to articulate these things so that those who care more about outward appearances than they do the heart hear about real heart issues. How relevant is that for us today? Because of our double-layered truth worldview, it's very hard to talk about things that matter with folks, isn't it? And we talk about our house, we talk about our cars, we talk about our vacations, we talk about the pool we want to put in. We talk about all the stuff that's kind of keeping up with the Joneses that we seem to be pursuing in life that, that are going to be um, things of tomorrow's garage sales, rusting out years from now and completely meaningless. But boy, if we start tapping into matters of the heart, what really matters in life, what, what really counts, all of a sudden it's like, ah, <laughs> it's a little uncomfortable. Doesn't it? That's kind of your private thing. But you leave that in your house or in your church. And what God's declaring to us is boast about it. Declare it. Declare the thing that's changed your heart. Declare the thing that really matters most to you. First, does it matter most to you? And if it does, it should be easy for it to just seep right out of your life, right out of your words, right out of your actions as we declare as ambassadors a message of reconciliation. Why? Because we've been reconciled to God. Amen? That's what Paul says. So in verses 12 and 13, he's saying, listen, we're talking about things that matter, things of the heart that are so much more important than things of outward appearance. And then I love verse 14. This is a popular verse. How can you not um, be motivated by this? He says, I want you to do this because the love of Christ controls us, because Christ died for all. How powerful is that? Paul's saying, listen, I've recognized something, that Christ died for me, and his love that goes beyond what we define love to be, the the shortcomings of that word love, and I've said this before, I I think we say the word love and it it, it loses its meaning, right? Right? It's one of the most overused words in our culture. I love my parents, and I love pizza. I could say that in the same sentence, and it has varying meaning, right? I mean, I'm passionate about pizza, but but I love my parents, my wife. I love my children. I love God, and, and I love this movie, or I love my car, right? We use the word So often, and and it it hits our brains and registers through experiences and circumstances and disappointment and folks that were supposed to love us who didn't, and it pumps out a definition that is less than. But what we recognize in the context of verse 14 is that Christ died. His love was not based on your performance. It was based on his choice. His love, his great love caused God to leave heaven, come to earth and pay the price and be our substitution to justify us, to forgive us so that we receive the righteousness of Christ that we didn't deserve and could never earn. A God we weren't even looking for, a God we were rejecting in our rebellion came and loved us in a tangible, objective, real way as he died for us. And Paul says that reality controls me. The reality of that grace and that love controls me. What we're seeing about our grace story is that the reality of grace causes us to get up and be different. I don't think someone walks into a situation where they experience the grace of God and recognize that truth and that reality and walk away unchanged and indifferent. Does that make sense? And so what Paul says is the love of Christ controls us. Because he died for us. What a powerful message we have. Love of Christ controls us. The love of Christ dictates my life and what I do and why I do it. The love of Christ controls me. If I've been loved in such a way, it should should produce in me love towards others. If I've been forgiven in such a way, it should produce in me the ability to forgive. If I've been loved and forgiven in such a way, it should dictate and change the way I treat my wife, the way I treat my children, the way I treat my coworkers, the way I treat my neighbors. You see, there's a reason why we believe that we should act in a particular way. It's because the love of Christ controls us. Absent that reality... It's really just a moral obligation that in our today's worldview, um, has no root in any reason. Does that make sense? I don't want to get distracted, but, but I think that's a powerful point. That the reality of, of God and who he is and his love in our lives dictates the way that we live amongst each other. And absent that, why would we? Absent that reality. What sort of moral law are people living by? You know, what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. Okay. Is there anything that you think is wrong in this world? Yes. You guys know, watched thousands and thousands of, of women march yesterday. What a powerful statement. Why? Well, I believe women are equal. I do too. Because everybody's created in the image of God. They reflect the image of God to the same degree a man does. They reflect a, a particular, uh, uh, they're a particular reflection of, of who God is in the same way that anyone else is. Absent that understanding, what's true for you is true for you. What's true for me is true for me. How could you look at a Muslim nation that treats women as second-class citizens and doesn't believe they should be educated and, and believes they should be covered and believes they should obey their husbands? How could you look at them and say, that's wrong, objectively wrong? Objectively wrong, why? What exclusive truth are you claiming? that they're objectively wrong if what's true for you is true for you and what's true for me is true for me. Well, we know it's wrong because God says so, right? Do You guys hear where I'm coming from? See, if we're just flying around on a piece of dirt in space and there's no interaction from a God who loves us, then it's all meaningless anyway. Who cares what anybody does? but we know something because God's declared to us who he is. God's declared to us how he relates to us. God's declared a truth that he's now reconciled us to himself and given us a message of reconciliation. You guys with me this morning? Uh-oh. All right, I'm gonna fly. Just, let's just run through the rest of this passage quickly. Verses twelve and thirteen talks about boasting, and we've already addressed that. What story has God given you that values what matters, values what's what matters to the heart, not outward appearances? And why? Why? Because Christ's love compels us. In verse fourteen, it controls us because He died. That those who live no longer what live for themselves. It's impossible to to be in the presence of a God who died for you and who saved you and who's forgiven you and then decide, you know what, thank you, give some sort of intellectual salute to that and say, I'm going to now go on living for myself. Does that make any sense? The only appropriate response to the grace of God is to say, if I have a God who loves me this much, then I must spend my life living to serve others in the way that He served me. Does that make sense? That's our reaction to the grace of God. My motivation now is to serve others, to love others, to lay my life down for others. The golden rule isn't the golden rule because it just came out of nowhere. The golden rule comes from scripture. Treat others how you want to be treated. Esteem others more highly than yourselves. That didn't just get made up by a secular society. That came from God. His love controls us. If you recognize his love, the only reaction is to love others and to esteem others more highly than yourself. To recognize that the only reason you were brought from being low to high is because of his work, not your own. And so you look to others as someone who's low and who's received a gift that they didn't earn and says, you know what, I I have to extend that to you. That's our grace story, amen? Christ's love compels us because he died. So we no longer live for ourselves, we now live for others. Can I tell you, a life that is seeking self and that is living for self is the most miserable life you can find. But a life lived to serve others experiences what the Bible talks about is joy that goes beyond your ability to understand, amen? The word of God isn't here for your happiness. We say this all the time. The word of God is here for your joy. We were talking about it, I think, in the in the. In the, maybe I said it a couple weeks ago. I can't remember where I said things. But, but happiness is fleeting. Happiness is fleeting. I wake up, have a great cup of coffee, feel great about myself, put some good music on, get some breakfast. The kids actually get themselves dressed and I don't have to yell at anybody. And they get on the bus and it's amazing. And I'm happy. I'm a happy guy. I get in my car. I head down River Road, get on the 690 and that Guy will not get out of the left lane, right? Get out of the left lane. Like, I don't understand why two people drive the same speed next to each other. The left lane is for me to go faster. Is anybody with me? My happiness is gone. Immediately gone. But the word of God is here for your joy. That's why you can experience tragedy, devastation, loss, difficulty. And as you serve God and seek him first, he produces in you as you live for others a joy that goes beyond your ability to understand. It has nothing to do with superficial happiness. It has to do with living life the way God designed you to live it for others. Amen? I'm getting to it. I'm sorry. This is taking too long. Mike, you preach long. Come on. (laughs) <laughs> I, can, I can. All right. <clears throat> verse 17. Verse 17. We don't. Verse 17 and 18. We don't, we don't look at people the way we used to look at them now, right? Because the old has passed away. Behold, all things is new. If you're in Christ, guess what? You're a new creation. This has to do with your identity. This is why we speak this message, this is why we share our grace story. Because you're not identified by your career. You're not identified by who likes you and who doesn't like you. You're not identified by what neighborhood you live in or how much money you have. All of that stuff could be taken from you in a moment and your whole identity could be devastated and washed away and you could live a life of depression if those are the things you're counting on for your identity. You know who you're identified by? Jesus Christ who died for you, who knew you before the foundation of the world and who loves you. And who saved you. That's your identity. Amen? So regardless of circumstantially, subjectively, what happens to you, your identity is in Christ. Your identity is in him. All the old stuff's passed away. You're new. You are a new creation. You say, Jeremy, you don't know what I've done. You don't know the things I've done to people. You don't know what happens when, when, when I'm alone and I'm behind the computer. He knows He knows your life is laid bare before him. You're not justified by your works or your lack of works. You're justified justified because of his righteousness and his work, because he loves you. Find your identity in that. The old's gone. You're a new creation. Amen? So we don't look at people the same way. We don't look at the people the same way. In, in, in the life of a Christian who recognizes the gospel as you go to speak your grace story, it, it should be laced with that kind of humility. Nothing drives me crazier than folks in the name of the church wow. y- railing and, and, and screaming and protesting and, 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 and just demonstrating all the things that they're against. And I look at that sometimes and I say, where is the gospel in that? I'm not, I'm not some self-righteous, better-than-anyone-else person who's pointing my finger at someone else and saying, how dare you live that way? I'm a former object of wrath who deserved the justice of God, who God pulled out of the ditch and cleaned up when I was completely incapable of saving myself. And the only thing I could be doing is standing next to someone else just saying, here's what God's done in my life, and he offers it to you. Not because I'm anybody better than anyone else, but because of Christ in his death and resurrection. Amen? Amen? That's our story. Where's this arrogance come from? What have you done to save yourself? What have you added to the table of salvation? Nothing. Jesus did it. Our posture should be that of humility and gratefulness, not condemnation and self-righteousness. That's not our story. We're new creation. So we think of folks different, not according to the flesh, but by the spirit. That's what verse 17 and 18 says, "I'm moving." Christ reconciled the world to God and entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. So open your mouths and speak. That's what verse 19 says. Christ reconciled the word to God and he entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. So speak. Because in verse 20, God's called you to be an ambassador. An ambassador. And God is making his appeal through you. Amen? God's making his appeal through you. God is, I'm going to quote Matt Chandler, God is for God. He's primarily not for us. This whole Christian thing isn't about us and our lives and our calling and our, I mean, the old youth pastor stuff. We grew up in youth group thinking everything was about us. God is for you because he's making his appeal through you about him and who he is and his glory because he's about him. Amen. So God has made you an ambassador to speak through you, to make His appeal through you. As Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. So listen, I'm going to tell you my story because you can look at me and say, if God can save any, if God can save anyone, He saved me. He could save you. And that's the appeal God wants to make through your story, through your life, through what He's done. So He implores you. A couple questions, and I'm going to end with this, but I can't speak, right? Who's ever felt that way? I can't speak. I, I just can't talk. I can't open my mouth. I don't, I don't say things the right way. Um, I feel incapable of sharing this story about myself. First of all, let me just say, I think we got to get over this worldview that says we're not supposed to talk about these things and recognize that's the truth of your life. Open your mouth and talk about it. Second of all, if you're intimidated, if you feel like you can't speak, you really got to look at Exodus 4, verses 10 and 12, because Moses felt the same way. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who's made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Amen? Amen. God sent you as an ambassador, but I can't speak. God says, I made your mouth. You go, and I'll be with your mouth. Speak. How could we not talk about this great thing that has happened to us? Last thing I'm going to say is as a church, we need to pray about this. God's making his appeal through us. We need to pray. Amen? Let's Ephesians 6, 6, verse 19 and 20. Pray, Paul says, pray for me that the words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. He says in Colossians 4, 3 and 6, pray for us that God would open a door for the word so that he could declare the mystery of Christ while he's in prison. And that he would make it clear, which is how he ought to speak. Verses five and six of that chapter talk about speaking with wisdom and graciousness and salt, that his words would be like salt, so that he would have answers for those who ask. Paul, as an ambassador for Christ, said in these occasions in Ephesians and in Colossians pray. Pray so that I'd have boldness, pray so that I would be clear. And pray so that my speech would have wisdom and be like salt to those who have questions. Isn't that a good prayer for us? Christ, God is making his appeal through you. So go. Go. What's happened to you? What are you a witness of? Maybe some folks need to sit and hear verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. Be reconciled to God. Jesus has made a way for that to happen. You get to be in a relationship with God. You get to approach because Jesus made a way. Because when the just, sovereign God of the universe looks at you, he doesn't see all your screw-ups and your shortcomings and your faults. When he looks at you, if you're in Christ, he sees Christ's righteousness. He says, you get to come. You get to approach. You get to be in relationship with me. And because of that, I'm entrusting you with this message of reconciliation for others. The outcome of a life impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ is a life that shares grace story. Amen? Let's pray.